Well, at this point, I'd like to dismiss all the kids going back to Children's Church. Age three to kindergarten, three to five years old. Feel free to head back and join Miss Susan back there for Children's Church. And as the little ones head back, I'll invite the rest of us to turn to the book of Malachi as we start a new sermon series in the book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. There's a uh, division, which really shouldn't be in your Bibles, between Old and New Testament, because it is one story from cover to cover. The last book in the Old Testament before Matthew is Malachi, and we'll be in the first five verses this morning. As you turn there, just a couple things to note. Uh, I don't know where they went, but John and Annabelle were here. John and Annabelle, pre, you know, typical for them, they're hiding. But they are here, so make sure you don't let them hide and say hi to them in the back. And I also want to say, just while I was gone, a thank you so much to Larry Carrier and Josh Lewis for preaching for us. I was listening to their sermons and reflecting that we are blessed at CBC for the size of church we are to have many, many people who know their Bible well, who can teach it well. And minister well, and I'm thankful. You guys don't even need me. Um, And I praise God for it. Another note. I'm going to do something that's going to annoy a lot of you. Uh, And that is that during this sermon, and for the next few sermons, maybe during this whole series, I'm going to try something. There are going to be no sermon slides on the screen. We'll have the text here at the beginning, but then we're going to have no sermon slides. And why am I doing that? Well, um, Sometimes I find the slides actually distract you guys, and you might not see it as well as I see it. When the slide goes up, I see a bunch of eyes go there, and I know as soon as that happens, you're not actually listening. So there's that reason. And you say, well, where are we going to read our Bible? Like, I'm a a visual learner. Well, you have a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, you should have a Bible. So me not having slides during sermons is actually my way of encouraging you, bring your Bibles. Open them up. And if you don't have one, we'll give you one. Take one. We have extras. I got some in my office. If you don't have a Bible, make sure you have one and do your own work of actually looking at it in your own hands. Have your own Bible with you as you come to sermon. So I'm taking the crutch of the text on screen away during the sermon so that you can work in your own Bible during the sermon. So that's going to annoy a lot of people. I'm aware of that beforehand. Just roll with it and God will be gracious to us. All right. Now, that disclaimer aside, let's begin in Malachi. I'm going to read the first five verses. I'm reading out of the ESV. I don't know what you have. But from the ESV, Malachi 1, 1 through 5 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob... But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Our Father and God, I pray that you would be here among us and you would help us to understand your word and that we would be a people centered on your word, uh, animated by your word, taught, humbled, confronted, challenged, encouraged and affirmed by your word to us. So we ask that you would speak to us as a father speaks to his, his children lovingly and with grace. 
May your spirit be here among us and with our children and all those who are with us today, we pray. In the name of your Son, amen. How do you prove you truly love someone? How do you prove that? I don't think you prove you love somebody by romantic flares and gestures and songs and poems and all those things. Those are nice, but infatuation can produce those. Emotion can produce those kinds of things. I think love is proven over time. Love is proven over the course of many selfless decisions and demonstrations of commitment through good season and bad to be committed to loving someone. Love is proven by the wife who stays with her husband when he has a stroke at an early age and leaves him non-responsive and he is no longer there, but she says, I made a vow and I'm committed till death to love this person. Love is proven over time, and it is proven through good seasons and bad, through trials, when life is unlovely. How do we know God loves us? How do we know God loves us when life is unlovely? That's my main question for us this morning, the question I want to work through, because it's the question that Malachi 1, 1 through 5 answers. How do we know God loves us when life is unlovely. And that's an important question because often life is unlovely. And you feel this. You've gone through seasons of life where life was not very fun. There are seasons of the church where life is not very fun. There are times where it's discouraging, where uh, people walk away from the Lord and from your life and they no longer want you in them and that's painful and it hurts. There are times when family members get hurt and have illnesses that you can't stop and life is hard. Sometimes the church can be filled with division and tension. We feel tension in our nation and political angst. There's a lot of discouragement going around over the last few years. How do we know God loves us when that's what we feel, when that's what we see, when life is unlovely? That's the question. That's the question of Malachi's time. They are living in unlovely times. And the first question that's answered in the book of Malachi is, how do we know God loves us? I'm going to answer that question, and we're going to work through actually five movements in these five verses, five movements or five sections that answer this question, how do we know God loves us when life is unlovely? The first movement is just in verse 1. This is Malachi's introduction. It's kind of that superscription that starts the whole book, Malachi's introduction. Let's briefly look at that in verse 1 in your Bible. says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. As the book of Malachi's introduction, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, what do we know about Malachi or Malachi, the Italian prophet, as some call him? Uh, we actually know nothing, essentially, about Malachi. He's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. In fact, some people think he wasn't an actual person. His name means my messenger, so maybe this is just a generic messenger that God spoke through. We're not sure. I lean towards this being an actual person, a real man who lived, a prophet, but we don't know anything about him. We just know he was given to deliver God's word, not to make up his own word, but to say this is what God has said. And we may not know anything about Malachi, but we know something about Malachi's time. And when this was written, it was given in the mid-400s B.C., about 450 years before Christ was born. This word, this prophecy, was given to Israel after they had returned from exile, from captivity 
and Babylon. As you know, the northern and southern kingdoms were both conquered by Assyria and then Babylon, leading up to the mid-500s or so, and then they were, the people of Israel were in captivity in Babylon, but eventually allowed to be released under the Persian kingdom, and they came back in waves back to Israel. But they came back to a destroyed temple in Jerusalem, destroyed walls, and they had to rebuild. Rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, rebuild the city. And through the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple and the city were rebuilt. But as we get to Malachi, towards the end of the story in the Old Testament, some of the structures may have been rebuilt, but the worship wasn't. The people were stagnating in their worship. They needed a word that their life of worship might be restored. So God brings a word to them, an oracle. The word for oracle there, sometimes in other places, is translated burden. It's an interesting word. It's a word for a heavy word. I'm reminded, you know, I pumped my hand earlier when Andy mentioned Spokane, Washington. I grew up in Spokane. I'm a Washington boy, and one of those great Washington bands was Soundgarden. One of their great songs is called Burden in My Hand, and I love that song. But that's what I was reminded of as I was reading this, this oracle, this burden in the hand of Malachi to give to his people. You ever get a text message or a message that says, we need to talk? That's kind of what this superscription is saying. Hey, we need to talk. God has something to say, a word for you. The word is a dispute. And that's the second movement here. We go into verse 2. We see Israel's disputation. Actually, Israel has a disputation with God, so God has a disputation with them. And throughout Malachi, there are actually six disputations, six arguments. And that's how the book is broken up. It's really easy to structure. There are six major disputations that God has with the people and the people have with them. It's a, it's a book of argument. And God is going to argue something with his people who argue with him. And here we see Israel's disputation with God. When you look at verse 2, it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? So there's Israel's argument with God. How have you loved us? Prove it. God is affirming his love for his people. I have always loved you, is the way it reads. I have always loved you. It's not that I just love you now. It's not that I just might love you in the future. It is an enduring love, a constant love. I have always loved you. It is a love of covenant faithfulness. I am committed to you. I made a promise to you. I've given my covenantal love to you, and I'll be faithful to the promises that I have made. But Israel disagrees. Israel says, how? Show it. How have you loved us, God? They don't buy that God has loved them. That may not be a quote of theirs, but that's what they felt in their hearts. In their hearts, they thought that God had not loved them. Have you ever gotten into a dumb argument before? Back in college, I remember my friends getting into a heated argument as to whether or not Caesar salad dressing had anchovies in it. And there was one who was adamant. There's no way there are anchovies in that. Nobody would eat it. And now, this was before we had these magic devices in our hands, and you could just answer a question real quick, you know, the magic knowledge machine. So we just had to stick out with the stupidity of this argument. 
It's about as foolish as arguing with God. That's what they're doing. Why do the Israelites argue against God's love? Well, they're looking around, and maybe they're remembering some of the promises of God and saying, where are they? In Haggai 2, God promised that his glory would return to the temple. And they might look around and say, where's God's glory here? We don't see it. Zechariah 8 had promised that many people would flock to Jerusalem, but we know from Nehemiah that Jerusalem was relatively empty. And there were no nations or people flocking back to Jerusalem, the capital city. The energy, the vibe was lost. Zechariah 9 promised victory to Israel, but they were still under Persian rule. Jeremiah 31 promised spiritual renewal, but the people's hearts were not yet revived. So where is your faithfulness, God? Where are you in the midst of this? As one commentator said, the people seem to be saying, God doesn't seem to care anymore. And if he doesn't care, why should we? Where had the love of God gone? And if we're honest, if you're honest, if I'm honest, we can resonate with that sometimes, where we say, God, where are you? God, I've been praying for this for years and years and years, and you have not answered. God, that person that I love is still wayward, and I've done everything, and I've cried out, and yet you remain silent. Where is your love, God? You can resonate with that question and that argument, this book is for you. God's answer is for you. How do we know God loves us when life is unlovely? In our third movement in the text, God answers the dispute. He answers Israel's disputation by reminding them of Jacob's election. Jacob's election. He reminds the people of Israel that God has chosen them, not because they were worthy, but because of his great love and choice of them as his people. God has elected, has chosen Jacob. Look at verse 2. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Here is the proof of God's love for Israel. He has loved Jacob, but hated Esau. Now to understand this, you have to understand a little bit of the Old Testament story, and the story of Israel goes back way before Israel to really a man named Abraham. You know Abraham. Who's Abraham? Well, Abraham was just a, a guy amongst the nations uh, who worshipped foreign gods, but God plucked him out and God chose Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm out of you. I'm going to make a great nation that will bless all nations. So God gave his promise to Abraham. I will bless you. I will bless your offspring. And you will have a great nation that will come out. You'll have a son. And you'll have my blessing, my favor upon you, Abraham. And Abraham did have a son. His son, his name was Isaac. So that blessing of Abraham passed down to Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons, two twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the older son of the twin boys. He was the one who came out first. And according to custom, according to heritage, Esau ought to have received the blessing from Abraham down to Isaac, and it should go to Esau as the oldest. He should be the favored one, the one who received the blessing and the promise that out of you will come a great nation. That should have gone to Esau, but instead, God chose Jacob, the younger of the two sons, said, I will give it to Jacob, that Jacob 
will be the blessed child. Jacob, who is Israel. Here's an important question. It's important to this whole story. When did God make that decision that Jacob would be the favored and blessed child? Is it after they had grown up and proven themselves? Did they go through tests around you know, 12 years old to prove their manhood and one was better than the other? Was it through competition? Or no. Before they were born, as Paul says when he reflects on this in Romans 9, before either of them had done right or wrong, so it was not based on anything they had done, these two boys, before they were born, God chose Jacob. God told Rebekah, Isaac's wife, in Genesis 25, 23, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Before they were born, God chose the younger, Jacob, to bless him. We call this Election. It's the doctrine of election, the doctrine of God's choosing his people. Not because one was more deserving than the other, but only because God has chosen to love that person. In fact, if you know the stories of Esau and Jacob, you know that neither were more deserving than the other, right? Why did Esau lose his birthright? What did he do with it? You know the classic story? He sold it for a bowl of soup. He came in hungry one day, his brother had some soup, and I said, oh, that looks good. And Jacob's like, I'll sell it to you. You've got a bargain of a deal. And it's a weird story, but what's so weird about it is that Esau did not care about his birthright, did not care about his favor with God. He just flittered it away. He did not care at all about his blessing and that relationship with God and just gave it almost freely. He didn't deserve God's favor and blessing. He despised it. He rejected it. Jacob was no better. If you know the story of Jacob, he wasn't deserving of God's great favor and blessing. Jacob was a liar and a deceiver. He even tricked his dying dad, lied to his dying father, saying he was his brother so that he would get the inheritance. That is sinful and wicked. So we don't look at Jacob and Esau and say, well, clearly one was better than the other. No, it is not based on anything they had done. God simply, in his love, chose one. He, as the text says, loved Jacob and hated the other. And boy, we have a problem with that, don't we? As we read that text, we say, what? God hated Esau. God wouldn't hate anybody. The challenge with that is that there's a number of passages throughout your scriptures that says God hated his enemies. Psalm 11.5, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. We have trouble understanding this because our hatred is so sinful. Our hatred is wrapped up in bitterness and self-righteousness, and jealousy, and malice, and anger, and and all sorts of sinfulness, so we can't understand a a holy hatred of sin. So we struggle with this. And in this context, God's hatred of Esau is a way of saying he has not favored Esau, he has favored and blessed Jacob. Jacob. He has loved him differently than Esau. 
So I'm going to take a moment here. I'm going to poke at something uh, that we recently said at VBS. So uh, I'm not calling anybody out. If anything, I'm calling myself out. I should have caught this. But in one of our lessons at VBS, we said, God loves all people the same. Esau would disagree. Malachi would say, well, it's not quite right. Yes, God loves all people. He has poured out his rain on the just and the unjust alike. He has blessed all people. And there's no one who can say, God has dealt unfairly with me. He has given his love to all but he has not given his love to all in the same way. Jacob, he is loved specially. His chosen people. Because Jacob was better? No. But because God was loving, and in his sovereign choice, he chose Jacob, Israel, as his people. God says this in Deuteronomy 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you're the fewest of all peoples. So why did God love Israel? It's because the Lord loves you. That's why. That's the answer. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. God loved Jacob and Israel simply because he just chose him. And you might say, well, that's unfair. And I would say, I agree. It is totally unfair that God would love Jacob. It would be fair if he hated them both. What would be fair and just and righteous and in keeping with God's holiness is if he rejected both Jacob and Esau. The mystery of this passage of Malachi 1-2 is not that God hated Esau. The great mystery of this passage is that God loved Jacob. That's the miracle. That is the graciousness of God. Because in his justness, if he were fair, he would reject all sinful people. And all would be rejected. But in his great love, he decides to choose some, to choose Jacob and elect him as his people and to make them his people. And he communicates this so that Jacob would know you are loved, you are chosen. So as we get into these kinds of passages, and this is one of the peak ones in your scriptures, this in Romans 9 and a couple others, about the election of God, God choosing his people. What we tend to do is to see those, and we want to get in theological, philosophical arguments about them. And that's fair. I love those, actually. I enjoy those type of philosophical arguments. But it's not why they're there chiefly in Scripture. Why are these passages of election here in Scripture, like here in Malachi 1? They are here to show God's love. That's what they're there for. They're there to comfort you. God has chosen you. He loves you. He, by no uh, twisting of his arm, there's nobody who can do that. Uh, by no coercion, he has selected and chosen you to love you. And if you're a part of the church, God has chosen you and he loves you. Out of all people, he has said, I want you to be my people. And he wants Israel to know those who are struggling, they've come back from captivity, they don't see the love of God anywhere. And God reminds them, I have loved you and I chose you. And I didn't have to. Look at your brother. 
You didn't do anything to deserve it. But because of my goodness, I loved you. And in fact, look at what will happen to your brother. So we go here into the fourth movement of this section in verse 3, in the middle of verse 3, on down to verse 4. We read of Edom's destruction. In contrast to Jacob's election, we have Edom's destruction. Edom is the, the people, the nation that came from Esau, just like Israel came from Jacob. Edom came from Esau. And here God describes Edom's destruction. Verse 3, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So here we have two nations you can compare and contrast. I think it was Theodore Roosevelt who said, comparison is the thief of joy. Here, not so much. Comparison, this should be a source of comfort and joy for Israel. Because God calls Israel to compare to Edom and how I'm going to treat them and have treated them. And there's a rivalry there between Israel and Edom that go way back. It goes way back to the womb of Rebekah. Their rivalry goes back that far. And as nations, it goes back from the very beginning. So when Israel was left out of, or escaped from, and uh, was delivered from Egypt on their way to the promised land, who opposed them along the way? The Edomites. They were a nation of people that kind of settled south of Israel, and they were constantly a thorn in their side and had been forever. That sibling rivalry thing just like carried on forever. At one point, King David conquered the Edomites, and then under Jehoram, the Edomites fought back and freed themselves. And then, when Babylon came to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah and Israel, the Edomites cheered them on. They aligned themselves with Babylon. They were praising, ha ha, look what happened to them. The Edomites were a big fan of Israel's destruction. So there's no love lost between these two peoples. But then about mid-400s, the Edomites were wiped out. There are no Edomites, there's no nation of Edom today. And there's a reason for that. God was true to his word. Babylon turned on the Edomites started conquering them. Arab tribes from the south came up and picked apart the Edomites. That might be the, the jackals of the desert that this is referring to. Arab tribes came and the Edomites were no more by the end of the Old Testament. One of my favorite stand-up comedians is a guy by the name of Brian Regan. I don't know if you know who he is. One of his older teens, he talks about ant hills, or ant piles. He talks about them and he says, I don't know why, I just can't help but you know, knock them over whenever I see them. And he goes, what amazes me about anthills is that none of the ants stop after. They just go right back to immediately building. He said, you think there would just be a few that would say, oh, come on. Like a few that would just say, I quit. I'm done. I don't want to build it anymore. He's just, you know he's just going to knock it over again. I'm not going to rebuild it. All right, so that's my bad Brian Regan impersonation. But, but it reminded me of this because basically God is saying, like, yeah, I'm just going to kick over that anthill if they try and rebuild it. Edom's going to try. They're going to be destroyed. And they're going to try and rebuild. I won't let it happen. I'm just going to keep knocking it over again and again and again. Now, contrast that with Israel. How many times was Israel knocked down? Now I'm reminding, remembering old things of pop culture in my youth, the Chumpawumba song. 
and get knocked down, but I get up again. Right? Israel be knocked down. God in his grace, rebuild it. Knocked down, God in his grace, rebuild it. Restore it. God would give Jacob, his people, chance after chance, restore them, restore them time and time again. Not so with Edom. Why? God loves his people. It's a promise for Israel, it's a promise for the church. When Jesus says, I will build my church, that promise is not dependent upon the church's goodness. That promise is dependent upon Jesus' faithfulness. I will make sure this people triumphs. And it's a promise for us as the church. Your enemies will be destroyed, but I will make sure you are restored in the end. One day you will see Babylon will fall and will be no more. But you will stand in the new Jerusalem because I made a promise. Because God has promised it. Because he loves his people. And you'll know his love. That's what we see in verse 5, the last movement, the last section of this passage. Edom's destruction will bring about, will heighten God's reputation. God's reputation will be great, as it says in verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. When the people of Israel see the great power and love of God, his judgment upon their enemies, his restoration of them, his love for them, they will prove his love by their worship, by their praise. They'll respond in praise that great is God, great among the nations, great in all the world, great beyond the border of Israel, not just in the border of Israel, but great beyond Israel. You know this maybe, that gods have been associated with specific lands, specific people, and specific tribes. So, um, the Moabites, they had Chemosh. The Canaanites had Molech, right? The Babylonians had Marduk as their god. The Greeks had their gods, Zeus, Apollo, Artemis, all, um, their many pantheon of gods. The Romans had Mars and Jupiter. So all these nations, all these peoples had their own gods associated with them. But like the police, they can only operate in their own jurisdiction. Powerful in their own land, but go outside. And what this is saying is, no, Israel's god is different. Our God, Yahweh, is great beyond the borders of Israel. His power flexes across the whole world. He won't just be great in our people. He will be great internationally, across the globe. He will show that he is great. How? Why? Because of his love for Israel, his conquering of the nations, and his love for the nations. And God's love will be proven beyond the borders of Israel, ultimately in the cross of Christ, where Jesus Christ has triumphed over all enemy powers and love and mercy for all nations on the cross of Christ. There, people from Babylon, from Egypt, from Moab, from Greece, from Rome, Israel, even people from Edom will come and find the love of God in the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. And there you will know that God loves his people. And people from every nation are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he has victory over all enemy powers. How do we know God has loved us? Romans 5.8 God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we deserved it. In fact, 
Church, if you are in Christ, you were chosen before you were born. Ephesians 1. God chose this love and redemption for you before you were born, just as God chose Jacob before he was born. Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, hear that? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian this morning, if you are in Christ, God has loved you for a long time. Before you were born, before the world began, God set his affection upon you. He said, you are mine, and I love you. We're now ready to answer the question from the beginning. How do we know God loves us when life is unlovely? We know because God loved you before you were unlovely. Before you had done anything good or bad, God has loved you and chosen you as his people. What does that mean for us? I'm just going to close with a couple minutes of reflection thoughts. What does it mean for us that God has loved us from the beginning and has chosen to set his love and affection upon us? It means there's nothing you can do to unearn his love because he's already given it to you. It means there's nothing you can do to stop his love. He has has already chosen to give it to you. If he has chosen you, he's not going to unchoose you. And his love means he'll be patient with you. Larry talked about this beautifully a couple weeks ago. He's not a God sitting around just waiting to punish you. He loves his children and is patient with them. He knows the sins you have committed and are going to commit, but he has chosen and loved you all the same. It means he will not remove you from his family but he has set up an eternal inheritance for you to live with him forever. It means he won't brush you aside when you go to him, but he delights to have his children come to him and seek him. It means he'll give you all you need to grow in holiness, to grow in Christ like this means there's nothing that God will withhold from you because he's already given you everything. He has given you his son. He'll never turn you away. He will always forgive you. And he actually delights in you. In the way a father delights in his children, far more God enjoys you and delights in you and loves his people. 
But as much as you may love your children, and you do, and I love mine, God loves you infinitely more because you are his child. And just as God has chosen his people, you can choose to belong to him. Scripture tells us God's people will include people from everywhere, even Edom. That just because the nation was not chosen, individuals may come and find grace in God. And you, you say, well, I'm not a Christian, I'm not part of the church. You can be. You can choose to follow Jesus Christ, to love God the Father, to be a part of his holy people. And if you make that choice, you will have been chosen by God in the great mystery of his providence. If you want to make that choice, ask us how to do so. Talk to us. We are the children of God, and we love more siblings. We love to expand the family of God and build his kingdom and his church, because that's what he's doing. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you have chosen your people and that you affirm, confirm, demonstrate your love for your people over and over and over again. And if we look personally in our own lives, uh, if we've been walking Jesus for a while, and especially, we can see how much you have loved us and given us grace and been good to us beyond what we could even recognize. So we want to worship and praise you, just as you're calling Israel here in Malachi to come worship and restore worship to you, Lord. We want to do that very same. And praise you, worship you, that your name would be great among the nations because you've shown us your love, especially in Jesus Christ, your Son. We praise you this morning. Amen.